Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, we've certainly become accustomed to volatility in the financial markets uh, and across the fixed income markets in particular here to get a sense of kind of how we should be thinking about investing in fixed income markets over the next several quarters. We welcome Mark Holman, CEO of 24 Asset Management with about $23 billion uh, under management. We appreciate Mark joining us. Mark, thanks so much for joining us here. So as we think about these markets here, I want to start with kind of what your backdrop is, what your construct is for the economy going forward. Is this a, a kind of a, a V-shaped recovery here, or should we be preparing for uh, lower for longer in terms of economic activity? Yeah, I think undoubtedly um, I'd be going for lower for longer in terms of economic activity. I think the, you know, the, the end of the last cycle ended with a surprise, as they often do, but this surprise was global. And when you've got a global surprise that hits every part of the globe at the same time, I think it, the, the impact is just that much more significant. And it's going to hit both the, the, you know, the supply side and the demand side. And I think it just takes a lot longer to recover. I mean, the, these incredible aid programs that we've got around the world, uh, whilst enormous in size, logistically just won't reach everybody. So there's, there's some long-term damage to demand. Uh, which in my view means we're going to be spending probably the best part of two years to get ourselves back towards a um, Q4-19 type production level. Mark, I'm struck, and so are a lot of people, about the disconnect in the slow recovery that a lot of economists uh, and analysts are seeing, and stock markets, which seem relatively... uh, unfazed by this whole issue, at least based on the rally that we have seen over the past month. This morning, we have Goldman Sachs coming out and saying that at one point, these realities are going to converge and that stocks are poised to drop about 20% over the next three months. Do you agree? Well, I think when you look at fundamentals, you have to agree that the, uh, that the market has really, really raced ahead and it's really pricing in, as you described, yeah, somewhat of a V-shaped recovery. Um, so I think, yeah, fundamentally, probably quite hard to justify where we are here. However, technically, I don't think we're, we're getting the full picture. You know, the full picture does include the incredible amounts of money poured in by the Fed and, and other institutions around the world. And we know they find you know, these, these volumes of cash find their way into financial markets. I mean, that these, these volumes of cash are going to be there for the foreseeable future. Uh, I think investors are saying, well, the Fed's behind us or the ECBs behind us, or the Bank of England behind us. And in particular, the action done in, in, the, in the U.S. Has been, has been very, very broad. So I think investors have got confidence from that, and I think the liquidity in the market is making it a very, very painful rally indeed. It's a, it's a squeeze. So, Mark, you know, in terms of the credit markets here, we're starting to see some bankruptcies and defaults kind of start trickling in across the tape here. How do you think this is going to play out as you take a look at the credit quality out there uh, in the markets that you look at? I mean, uh, credit quality is no doubt going to uh, deteriorate pretty much across the board. Uh, There'll be very, very few businesses that will improve their credit quality while this is going on. Now, over the last decade or so, we've been somewhat immunized from deteriorating credit quality by the, you know, by the actions from, uh, from central banks and government. So this hit is just too big. So I, th- I think we're going to see a material spike in the default rate. It's very, very hard to predict exactly what it's going to be in the, in the, in the world of rated securities. We, 
Well, we know that the uh, individual consumers are going to have problems because aid won't reach them, and SMEs will have problems because aid won't reach them. And you know, in the end, this does affect the larger companies too. And it's been quite remarkable how quickly some of those companies have run out of money. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm going to stick my neck out and say I wouldn't be surprised to see a global default rate by the end of this year approaching 10%. Hmm. Wow. From two and a half at the end of last year. So it's a really quite a big move. Where are you hiding, Mark? Where are you investing? <laughs> well, it's, um, it, it's tricky. Uh, in, in the corporate world, really, um, there's, there's a long list of sectors that I think you really need to try to avoid. And, um, you know, whether it be metals, mining, energy, which are sort of, you know, late cycle names that you don't want to, uh, on late, late cycle sectors. Um, and then there's the ones which are perhaps more impacted by the current situation, where you know, travel, leisure, uh, retail, of course, you know, automotive. So I think that those are the kind of areas to avoid. And, and where you can, I think, you know, focus on, on sectors that are uh, more resilient, obviously, but you know, where the balance sheets of the companies are more resilient or regulated, where there's more visible earnings. So I would say, you know, contrary perhaps to the, to the last uh, recession, you know, let's look at banking. Let's look at financial insurance as an incredible way of repricing itself. The banks have got very resilient balance sheets, you know, thanks to the terrific work, work done by the authorities or and, and utilities generally regulated much more solid balance sheets. And each of these industries are all open for business today. We're all still paying the bank interest. We're all still taking our insurances out. We're all still using these utilities. So they've, they've got the resilient balance sheets and, and they've got more visible earnings. So I think that the, the list of sectors is, is pretty small, but there's, you know, they're quite broad. There's quite a few companies that you can still invest with there with, with a lot of confidence. Mark Holman, thank you so much for being with us. Mark Holman, Chief Executive Officer of 24 Asset Management, based in London with $23 billion of assets under management. And I'm struck uh, by the idea that insurance companies mm-hmm. and banks will be the havens this time around. <laughs> yeah. It just sort of highlights how different this particular crisis is than the last one, Paul. Yeah, exactly. When you're thinking about that, you know, the big money center banks and being bailed out and the AIGs of the world. And uh, so as we've heard, you know, time and time again, this is very, very different. This is an external shock, a pandemic, a medical issue, healthcare issue, not something endemic to the financial system per se. We've been talking a lot about the pain in the developing world as that area sees a disproportionate hit from the removal of financing from the likes of the United States and Europe. Here to speak with us, we are so pleased to say, is the seminal expert on this area, Bill Rhodes, President and Chief Executive Officer of the William R. Rhodes Global Advisors, former Citibank Chairman, also one of the key architects of the restructuring efforts in Latin America during the 1990s, and the author of the book, Banker to the World. Bill, thank you so much for being back with us. I know that you see uh, potentially a crisis in emerging markets that exceeds what we have seen in recent history. I want to sort of focus in on some of the hot spots, starting with Argentina. Argentina on the brink of defaulting once again. Is there a threshold for how many times a country can default and what the consequences will be? Anyway, first of all, it's uh, great to be on with you, Lisa, Paul. Uh, I would say that in the case of Argentina, they, uh, they've defaulted eight times in their history. I've restructured them five times, and they're on the brink of their ninth default. They, they were going to declare a default um, today, and they moved it off to the 22nd uh, for further discussions with the creditors. But uh, they need to make a $500 million payment on their $86 million billion dollars of uh, of debt 
that they have. In addition to the $86 billion of, 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 of normal debt in the sense of sovereign debt uh, to creditors, they also have uh, an outstanding uh, of uh, somewhere, depending on uh, how you look at the disbursements, between 47 and $50 billion with the International Monetary Fund. So they are, they are basically uh, the case that's, uh, I think, uh, right at the uh, lance point of what's going on in the emerging markets. So, Bill, I know you've you've educated us uh, in the past about how this is a little bit different this time in that the private sector owns a lot of this uh, debt here. Is there any indication that the private sector, the I mean, the public sector will hold off on debt collection here, some of these hedge funds and, and, and investors? I think the only ones who've uh, agreed to hold off are the sovereigns, uh, which uh, in the, in the – uh, Group of 20 said they would hold off to the poorest countries uh, until the end of the year. But, of course, it's not even clear uh, what that'll be uh, after the end of the year. They haven't come up with a plan. And on the private sector, there are all sorts of discussions going on how the private sector and the public sector can work together. But at the, up, uh, up to now, there's been nothing on the, on the private sector. And as you point out, there's a lot of private sector debt out there. Uh, not only to the sovereign, uh, but to companies uh, in uh, in these various countries. So it's it's sort of uh, a perfect uh, storm type situation. It's the worst, uh, I would say, debt situation I've ever seen in my lifetime. And everyone's grappling with how to handle it because you have this COVID-19 uh, problem, which uh, even the experts are not sure of how to resolve it other than getting a vaccine, which it doesn't look like we're going to have until next year. Just to give you some perspective as to how deep the pain is, just to give you a sense of the nations that have dollar bonds uh, that are trading at distressed levels. It includes Venezuela, Argentina, Lebanon, Ecuador, Zambia, Zambia, Suriname, going all the way uh, through to Nigeria and El Salvador and, and a host of others. I'm just wondering what you think, Bill, based on your experience, should be done for this at a time when some of these emerging markets are actually trying what developed markets are doing and printing money. They're just doing QE, risking more inflation and further capital flight. Right. And you're talking about just dollar-denominated debt because you have two other phenomena out there. A number of these countries, particularly Eastern Europe and elsewhere, and some in Africa, have euro uh, debt also. So, um, And a lot of people tend not to, uh, to factor that in. And then, of course, you have the One Belt, One Road uh, Chinese lending policies that are uh, outstandings of anywhere because they're, uh, you know, it's very obscure as to how the outstand, what the outstandings are and what the collection uh, arrangements are, the credit arrangements. Any, the estimate there is anywhere from $240 billion to, to $500 billion. And so I think what needs to be done here is the IMF and the World Bank have to sit down with a group of 20 and try and work out some sort of a plan, uh, starting on the sovereign side, but also try and, and see if you can get an interlink with the uh, private sector, as we did with uh, the Brady bonds uh, in the, the late 19, uh, 1980s and the early 90s. Uh, and the situation here is much, much worse, because there it was an economic debt crisis, uh, but you didn't have a health crisis. And 
so many of these countries in the emerging markets don't have decent health systems. And then in Latin America, to exacerbate it, you have 5 million Venezuelan refugees uh, in Latin America, and that puts at risk countries like Colombia, uh, Ecuador, Peru, some of the islands in the Caribbean, and, uh, and also northern Brazil. Uh, and I would just say on Brazil is going through probably uh, one of the worst periods it's had because they just got out of recession, and now they're going to go back into recession uh, with 5% uh, negative growth this year with a president who doesn't want to recognize that COVID-19 is a problem. So, Bill, you mentioned China a little bit. And China, I know that during the last financial crisis, 2008, 2009, China was there, uh, pumped a bunch of money into the world economy. Is that still the case now? Can some of these emerging markets depend upon liquidity coming from China? Well, the reason I mentioned China was uh, you have a phenomenon that didn't exist in 08 and 09, which is one belt, one road. And all of those outstandings are already there. So, uh I think China is in a much more difficult position, plus their debt has been allowed, as a, starting with their bailout, I would say, of the world in 2008-2009, where they put into infrastructure and bought commodities from a lot of these de developing countries to the tune of uh, $800 billion, almost a trillion dollars. And they are not going to be a factor today, because they're own, uh, as they were then, because of their own uh, you know, debt load that they have. And they're going to be fighting just to keep the Chinese economy in a positive uh, uh, growth mode this year. So the answer to your question is they will be important, but they are not going to bail us out this time. And they have their own problems with the emerging markets. Which raises a question, who's going to take leadership in helping the developing world get out of this mess? Well, supposedly, uh, people think that the G20 will get their act together. But as you know, they're very fractured. And one of the things I give credit to my old friend Gordon Brown uh, was when he put everyone together at the London uh, conference uh, at the time in 2009, at the time of the, the great financial crisis, everyone agreed to work together. We don't even have an arrangement where these G20 countries have agreed to work together on trying to find antivirals and a vaccine. So unfortunately, we're going into a period with a very fractured leadership situation in the so-called developed world and real problems with leadership in the developing world. We're speaking with Bill Rhodes, president and CEO of William R. Rhodes Global Advisors, former Citibank chairman. Bill, you know, as we think about, you know, kind of how the, the arc of how this virus has spread from China to Europe to the U.S. Um, you know, there's varying levels of, of health care systems there. But when you think about Latin America and emerging markets in general, the health care systems in most places uh, are just not as robust as we've seen in kind of some of the Western economies. How bad do you think it's really going to get in? in just, let's just take Latin America, for example. I think it could get very bad. I think Brazil is an example uh, because they haven't put the money in the health system. Argentina is better off in that sense than Chile. Uh, Peru is, is all right to a certain point. But what's added to all of this is these Venezuelan refugees that have been forced out of their country. So it's, it's really the perfect storm that we are looking at here. And I think it's going to be very, very difficult. And, and then when you want to look at the COVID situation, as you already have mentioned, I think, on a prior uh, segment here, is that you're starting to see new cases again in places like South Korea, which thought they had gotten rid of it, Singapore, 
even some cases now reappearing in China. And this is not even taking into account the so-called famous second wave, which is supposed to hit us in the fall, uh, because we won't have a vaccine by then, and it'll be, it's not clear if we'll have an antiviral either uh, by then. Uh, and so uh, if you want to pattern this somewhat on the Spanish flu, it was the second wave that was the most destructive, uh, more so than the first wave. And uh, I think that's part of the problem, the fractured leadership, uh, even on an issue like uh, COVID-19. Bill, we've talked a lot about how the amount of emerging market debt has tripled by some counts in the past decade or or so. And I'm just wondering who's going to bear the brunt of the losses if there is a mass restructuring uh, like the one that you're calling for in order to remedy the situation? Well, I I think for governments who have lent, uh, it's much easier to absorb. But for the private sector who's lent, it's going to be very, very difficult. You're going to have a lot of bankruptcies. I think there'd be some real hits uh, to various institutions uh, that have taken on all this debt. And uh, you, you too remember well, I've been on your show for years wondering, uh, you know, wondering when this was going to hit because of the reach and search for yield that we've seen. And so there's so much exposure out there, uh, and a lot of this is going to come home to roost. So I think it's, we're in a very difficult period. So my hope is that the G20 can get its act together, both on a financial basis and on a health basis. Uh, And that's what I think we desperately need, or we're going to go through a very, very difficult period over the next two years. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your perspective, as always, when we talk about the emerging markets and some of the credit challenges uh, arising. There's no one better to speak to than Bill Rhodes, President and CEO of William R. Rhodes Global Advisors, former chairman of Citibank with tons of experience, years of experience dealing with emerging markets, Latin America in particular, uh, and some of their uh, fiscal uh, challenges over the years. So, Lisa, it just sounds like there is much more pain uh, for the emerging markets, the company. The countries themselves, the people, as well as the investors in those markets. Yeah. And just to sort of highlight how much debt these companies, companies and countries have, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars that they have uh, incurred over recent years. And there's a question, who's going to bear the losses? And yeah. some people saying, well, you know, it's time to reinvest in some of these areas because of the yields being offered. Yet you have to wonder what the capital flight will be like as the defaults really pick up. Lisa, you know, I grew up uh, within a household where my parents were children of the Depression, and it really impacted even, you know, all through my childhood, kind of how they viewed life in terms of, you know, money and, you know, food security and, and all these things. And I think, you know, it was such a such a significant impact on their lives that really, I think, impacted them their entire lives. And some folks are questioning whether this pandemic uh, will have a similar effect on some of the young folks today and what it means for consumer behavior and will the consumer actually come back and and spend and act uh, coming out of the pandemic as they did going into the pandemic. Christopher Condon, he's a Federal Reserve reporter for Bloomberg News, uh, joining us from Washington, D.C. Christopher, thanks so much. I know you kind of had a really interesting story, Scarred and Scared, the Reshaping of American Consumer Begins. This is really uh, I think, fascinating story. What did you find out? Thank you, Paul. Uh, yeah, you know, um, I think we're, compared to any expectations for a quick uh, return of the American consumer, there's not a lot of evidence to support that that would be the case, simply because the consumer is getting hit 
on really multiple levels. The story that I wrote about addresses three levels, where first of all, the most obvious is that a lot of people are losing their income. So it's not about their willingness to spend, but their ability to spend, and that's going to be severely damaged, and probably in many cases for quite a while. Um, but then moving even beyond that, we know from past experience, and you brought up the Great Depression, which I, I also talked about in that story. Um, there is a knock-on effect. It's not just for those people that lose their job and lose income, but when you see neighbors and friends and family members affected, it also, we know from the past experience, can affect people's spending habits. They get a little bit more cautious. Uh, and, and, you know, what I thought was really interesting, the economist that I spoke to brought up again and again that this is the second time in the space of about 12 years where we're hearing this is the worst recession since the Great Depression. And that really can begin. We don't know. This is a bit speculative. But that can really affect the psyche of people as workers, as consumers, for a very long time, just as you talked about your parents. And then finally, just uh, the, the other obvious thing about this, it's not just about economics for the consumer, it's about their own health. This contagion can affect you, obviously it can kill people. So that adds a, a, another element of fear. Um, again, we're being speculative here, we don't know how long it's going to last, but when you talk about risks like this, it, it, it brings in the emotional side of decision-making for consumers. And economists that have studied that say it's very difficult to overcome. It doesn't mean everybody's going to stop shopping. But even at the margin, if many millions of people are affected by this for a long period of time, that will have a great drag on our economy. Chris, some people say that the consumer is in much better situation now than it was heading into the 2008 crisis and that the U.S. government has supplied a big enough stimulus to offset a good deal of the missed pay for a large proportion of the U.S. population. They point to that as one of the reasons why consumer spending may be more resilient on the other side of this. Did any of the economists you spoke with address that? Yeah, well, there's a couple of things to say there, I think, Lisa. Um, it's true that on aggregate, the if you look at uh, household debt to income, it's in a much better place. But those numbers are really skewed by the upper end, the top 10%, the top 1%. If you look at the middle deciles across the, you know, the distribution of this data, people in the middle and even the upper to middle range we're not in a very good position in terms of debt to income before this. So those numbers are slightly misleading, I think. Second is that uh, it's true there has been a huge amount of support being brought out by the federal government. Um, now the question is how long does that, is that a sufficient enough bridge? It may help for a while, but you know, unemployment benefits now, even with the extension in the CARES Act going out to, say, 39 weeks for a lot of states, that's going to help a lot of people, but it won't bridge the full gap for many people who will lose their jobs for longer than that. And the 600 supplemental amount per week that the federal government kicked in as well, that's super, but it only lasts until July 31. So, it, again, how, will it really bridge the gap? And, and, and even then, you know, we talk about already the psychological scarring effect 
if you are able to bridge the gap in your income and then you have work again, you know, we can still ask, are you going to be as uh, uh, aggressive in your spending as you were before? So we don't really know the answers to all these questions, but it, it is quite worrying. Chris Condon, thank you so much for being with us. Chris Condon, U.S. economy reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us on the consumer confidence hit from the coronavirus. And I will just say, Paul, it's really interesting to see uh, the response to articles about the spread of the virus, with some people saying it's fear-mongering and that Mm -hmm. the virus has a pretty low fatality rate and that the shutdowns also have a high fatality rate. And other people saying, well, the reason why it's not a lot higher and why we're not seeing many more deaths is because of the shutdowns and this sort of push-pull in public sentiment ongoing as the U.S. and the rest of the world considers how to reopen. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it has a little bit to do with uh, kind of where in the country you reside. If you're kind of in that New York metro area, uh, you probably have a different view than if you're in middle America where you really haven't been that impacted uh, by it. Let's shift to another one that's suffering dramatically, and that is the hospitality and lodging sector. We're looking at Marriott International, which saw its revenue revenue per available room plunge 90% in April. The question is, how do you batten down the hatches and gird for the future there? Brian Egger joining us now, Senior Gaming and Lodging Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Can you give us a sense, Brian, of just how bad the carnage is and has been this earnings season versus expectations in this sector, the lodging sector? Sure. So we entered a situation where most of the major lodging companies have already effectively pre-announced results. And, you know, declines are certainly severe. If you look at revenue per available room, the key metric, that was down about 23% uh, in the first quarter for both March, uh, for both Marriott and Hilton. But more notably, in April, uh, that metric was down 90%. So you still have a lot of hotels that are currently closed. There is some pace of reopening, but it's going to be gradual and mixed and phased across the world, depending upon the type of hotel. So, Brian, there are, I guess the question for a lot of industries, a lot of companies is kind of consumer behavior. How is it going to be affected as we come out on the other side of this? Will we see material and maybe even permanent changes in consumer behavior? I know you do some a lot of work following the, the, the casinos in Macau. And as Asia starts to open up, what are some of the early feedback from the hotels and the casino and the other consumer-facing businesses there in Asia? So it's coming back slowly. I mean, the early indications are, as of the most recent months, certainly we've had 80%, 90% declines in at least gaming revenue. In Asia, you know, the hotels also coming back slowly. But because they entered this pandemic earlier, arguably they have the potential to start to recover um, somewhat sooner. I think what you're seeing within the U.S. is, again, it's going to be mixed by region where drive-to limited service hotels uh, in local locations probably can come back a little bit quicker but group hotels that depend on conventions, large resorts, major gateway cities are likely to come back somewhat slower. And likewise, it'll be varied you know, across the world in terms of U.S. versus Europe, et cetera. So we were just talking, Brian, to George about the airline companies and saying he was saying that without another government bailout, it's unlikely that all of the companies will survive in the way that they are currently. What's the consolidation wave going to look like in the lodging space if things continue the way that they're expected to? Sure. So we've already had a tremendous amount of consolidation in the lodging sector. Just to point that out, um, you know, there are 
many small independent hotels, but certainly the large chains like Marriott and Hilton that benefited from ample consolidation. And then you look at companies like Marriott that just reported today, you know, they do have $4.3 billion in liquidity. So given the amount of uh, the cash burn rate, if you will, uh, that they face during this period of downturn, that provides them with quite a long runway for them to be able to sustain even very draconian repertoire declines as large as 90%. doesn't mean there could have been some combination, uh, consolidation or even independent hotels that might try to convert their brand flag and convert to, a, let's say, a Marriott brand or something else. But, you know, it's certainly in terms of consolidation, because we've seen so much of it already, I think in terms of major chains, uh, they are, at least for their part, fairly well positioned to kind of weather this downturn and, and come back slowly. Brian, where are we in terms of supply of rooms in the marketplace? It just feels like there's been a, a lot of hotels, a lot of new construction, a lot of supply added to the market. Is that are we oversupplied here, or do you think, you know, given the pullbacks in demand, that the supply and demand are in decent shape? So we had seen kind of a low single-digit pace of new supply, and there were some concerns that maybe supply was growing more quickly in, let's say, the limited or select service segments. Uh, the reality is that because of the pandemic, you may see some openings delayed. Uh, you know, what Marriott had said in their call is in terms of scheduled or planned hotel openings in 2020, they don't know if that'll be down by 25% or 50%, uh, but it certainly will be affected. Um, but, but again, I think in terms of supply, it really, um, at least some of the slower level of construction they actually work to the benefit of the hotels. And you've got a decent number of hotels in construction. Those that were fair, fairly well along and being built uh, continue to uh, work through that construction process. But um, I think the, the bigger issue is how, how long does it take for demand itself to recover? And then there's a question, Brian, of additional spending to try to ensure that people feel confident that they aren't going to get sick or that these uh, hotel rooms are clean. I I mean, we've heard about some types of ventilation that are changing and uh, different cleaning standards that can be maintained to sort of show potential clients that they are safe. What are you hearing in terms of spending on that side? So um, I don't know if it's a question of spending as much as protocols and practices. You know, the way that companies have approached this as they think about the process of reopening is the likelihood of having um, some food and beverage outlets closed or operating at limited service with a lot of, uh, of pickup and takeout, um, of having, uh, in some cases, if hotels are running at very low occupancy, a limited utilization of certain floors, having a lot of safety and cleaning protocols in place for housekeeping. But the reality is because some hotels might find it practical or lose less money by opening at 10% occupancy rather than staying closed, you know, because they're opening with such limited occupancy in some cases in order to mitigate losses, the reality is that accommodating uh, social distancing might be somewhat easier to execute given the fact that the level of occupancy is slow, so slow to begin with at least during the initial stages of recovery. Brian Brian Egger, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate that. Brian Egger covers all things hospitality uh, and gaming for Bloomberg Intelligence. Marriott reporting some numbers today in the RevPAR and the occupancy levels, uh, you know, obviously down significantly, Lisa. And, uh, you know, it just kind of comes back to the question. We're talking with Brian Egger on the hospitality and George Ferguson on the airlines. It's 
kind of about consumer behavior. How will consumers come out of this on the back half of this pandemic in terms of behavior, in terms of going on planes, going to hotels, going to conferences and casinos and things like that? Yeah, at the same time, we're getting to summer. And I will say a lot of my friends and I have been talking about the fact that our kids are not going to be going to camp and there is no sign of vacation on the forefront. What do you do? Do you just stay in your home indefinitely? Do you try to get out? How do you get out? Do you stay at hotels? I mean, these are all the considerations as people start to face a very bleak number of indefinite months ahead. And it just raises a question, how can hotels uh, entice? people back and what sort of yeah. the confidence level they have to get. Yeah, I think, and, and there's a sizable part of the population, and I think it's a growing uh, per- percentage that says, we need to get back out there. We need to get this economy going. We need to get out of the house and start moving again. You know, we've, we've bent the curve and maybe we're at the point where uh, it's able, we're able to get out there. So we'll have to see how that plays out. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.